0: to welcome you to Lakeside this morning. We're glad that you're here. Um, we are anticipating, as a church congregation, looking forward to Sunday, uh, September 6, Labor Day weekend, where we specifically. Um, set aside a fundraiser for the missions organizations that we support. We support them all year. We support them out of 10% of our budget, just like we believe God desires for us to give 10% of what we receive for something outside of our own immediate needs to bless other people as a church. We want to model that, and so automatically 10% of our budget goes towards the support of global missions, causes and situations and people that are outside of our country that we are not the immediate beneficiaries of. And then on that particular Particular Sunday, we have a barbecue, a lot of just fun activities, just a a party, but as a a way to celebrate and raise additional funds for special projects that those various organizations might have, and so that'll happen on that Sunday. But um, next Sunday at nine o'clock, as Jerry announced, our team that went to Haiti, just a few. Uh, weeks ago a little over a month ago now we'll give a presentation at nine o'clock on their trip and so if you have young children we also have um, child care and classes provided at that time for kids but you can also bring the kids in with you to see the pictures and to hear the presentation that's up to you as parents and then the next sunday is when Stephen heather holson back who are our missionaries in africa will be with us and they will have the 9 o'clock class and give a full presentation there and then an abbreviated version in our Sunday morning service. And then they'll be with us for the entirety of that day in all of its festivities so that for those of you who know them, you can catch up with them. And for those of you who've never met them, you'll have the opportunity to do so. So we're looking forward to that. And as a church, then, what we're doing in this month of August is focusing on global missions to see that this is a theme all throughout Scripture, that this didn't begin simply when Jesus, at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, said, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, but that theme of God calling people by faith across cultures, across languages to into a deeper relationship with him and for the blessing and benefit of other people is sort of one of the main stories, themes throughout all of scripture. And so to demonstrate that, what we're doing is going way back in the Bible to the book of Genesis and to the life of Abram. And so I invite you uh, to take a Bible and to open it to Genesis chapter 13, where we will see in this continued story for us. We began in chapter 12, two weeks ago, looked at the first nine verses last week, we looked at the second half of chapter 12, and now we're on chapter 13. But the background to this is that God came to someone named Abram who was 75 years old, successful in life, very, very accomplished in his day, and God called him to take all that he had received, all the education, all the experience, all the accumulated wealth, and he called him into a dynamic, adventurous relationship with him and said, I want to send you somewhere and I'm not going to tell you where I want you to go. I want you to follow me by faith, to trust me enough that you will obey me and believe that along the way, I will tell you what you need to know. And so that's where we are. We're learning about this amazing journey that this man is on as he left everything that for him would have represented safety and security and notoriety, and he put all of it on the line for God. He didn't give it away, but he just put all of it before God and said, God, what do you want with this? Rather than just assuming that everything he'd accumulated and everything he had done was for himself, God called him to a higher purpose to say, what if I want something from you with all that I've given you? And that's the journey of faith that Abram is on. It's had plenty of challenges along the way. We weren't very far into it when we saw several challenges that Abram and his wife had already had to confront And now in chapter 13, they're returning from Egypt, and they went there because of a severe famine in the land of Canaan. So we'll read the chapter in its entirety. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. And at the time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right, or if you take the right, then I'll go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, And so Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. And that's where we'll conclude for today. So here they're coming back from Egypt because of a famine that had existed in the land. Abraham had made a spectacular failure, we called it last week, in deceiving Um, the leader of Egypt, the Pharaoh at the time, and he got himself in trouble and Pharaoh told him, take everything you have and please get away from me. You've not brought blessing to me, you've brought curse upon me, which is exactly the opposite of what Abram had been called to do. God had told him that in his faithfulness, God would bless all the families of the earth. And here, one of the first things he did was not bless a family, but actually bring curse upon them. And so he comes back to Egypt we can only imagine in a posture of repentance over his action and again wondering, well, what's next? <laughs> uh, so far, there's, this has been a mixed bag of experiences. What is next for me? And here is when we find out in no uncertain terms that he is very well off. He's an accomplished person. And not only he, but his nephew as well. So much so that it creates a problem for both of them that they have so much livestock that the available land for which to graze cannot sustain them both. And so there's a conflict between them and between their employees as to what to do. And also because the land that they're going is not just for the taking, it's occupied by other people. So there's limited resources, but they've accumulated quite a bit of things. And so one of the things that this chapter brings home to us is that sometimes blessings are curses. And so we learn what it means when sometimes blessings can be like curses. We, we might separate the two and say, no, there's, these are blessings and these are curses. Well, that's true. But sometimes blessings are curses. Sometimes there's what we call good problems to have. Where there's still problems, there's still conflict. It says that there was strife between their herdsmen. Strife, conflict between them and not because anyone was doing anything wrong. And that's frustrating when we realize that, but there is a lot of strife in this world, and there is a lot of conflict that arises not because anyone is doing anything particularly wrong or malicious, but there's still a situation that no one would desire. In the previous chapter, conflict had arisen because Abram had made a poor choice. (laughs) He had done something wrong, he put his family in an awkward situation, and there was understandable strife. Here we see there's conflict, there's strife, but when we try to cast blame and say, well, who's doing something wrong, the answer is no one. And that happens all the time. When we as sinners experience that, we can add to the conflict all kinds of sin, And what is maybe sometimes just a disagreement between us and another person about where we should go out to eat or what we should do on any given period of time and we disagree, there's a conflict. We can make it sinful if we have the wrong attitude and the wrong heart and and, and cast blame on other people, but a lot of times we just see things differently. We don't agree. We don't know what the right thing to do is. On Monday morning, I experienced this in a pretty dramatic way, went for an early morning run, and uh, someone who was parked where I was, now at the bottom of the hill at Sand Run, had, uh, their car had been broken into while they were running. And they got there much earlier than me. They got there at 5.30 to run, and when she got back from her two-mile run, her car had been broken into. So she calls the cops. Well, the Akron Police Department doesn't have jurisdiction in the park system. So now she has to wait until 7.30 when the park ranger opens up. And so for an hour and a half has to wait for someone to come and file a report. And here's the thing. That happened because everyone was doing their job. Everyone was following the rules. So the the officer that was called and discerned, I I have boundaries to what I'm allowed to do and where I'm allowed to do it, so I'm not allowed to go there. So he's just doing his job. The other guy is probably at home just getting ready for work, getting ready to do his job and show up on time for work. And they're, they're doing what they're supposed to do. But in their doing what they're supposed to do, there's this result where something that should be taken care of is not being taken care of. And that happens all over the time in our lives and in our worlds where conflict arises not because of sin, but just because of differences that we have. This happens uh, among siblings uh, that... You just don't agree with one another and then your siblings get married to people later and then you realize, oh, we have different personalities and different tastes and then you go to a place of work and you realize, I'm not sure that we, uh, that I think the same way with all of my coworkers on this or that. There's just, when you multiply people, you multiply perspectives and ways of doing things and ways of acting and that just creates a significant amount of conflict. Where again, no one's meaning to hurt anyone No one's trying to make things complicated, but whenever you multiply people and resources, which we would usually refer to as blessings. People are a good thing. They're a blessing. They're a gift from the Lord. It's it's good to have resources, but a lot of times they raise specific challenges that we otherwise would not have. When your budget is low and you just have to keep saying, well, I can't afford that, I can't afford that, I I just can't do that that's different than when all of a sudden you have a little bit more and now you have to have a conversation about, well, what should we do? Well, should we get a new car? Should we do this? Should we do that? And you can quickly become overwhelmed by all of the options that are out there because you have a little bit more to work with. And later what we see is that specifically for Lot, when he's given the opportunity to choose something, he chooses what looks like it's going to be a blessing. He chooses what looks good to his eye, makes sense to him, fertile ground, and it's in the next chapter that we learn that really wasn't a blessing. (laughs) What looked to him like a blessing really, in fact, was not a blessing. But here it is, the conflict arises, and then we see that there is someone who takes initiative and also chooses to defer, which are not two things that we usually put together, someone who is willing to take the initiative and get the ball rolling is a a go-getter and likes to accomplish things. And the person who always wants to defer and say, well, I mean, I don't care, you pick. You pick, you do it. And, And they're usually, again, these are things that we think of as either or. But here in our story, Abram takes the initiative and says in verse eight, let there be no strife between you and me. We need to resolve this. Neither one of us is doing something wrong here but this isn't going to go away simply by ignoring it. There's a problem. And so he takes the initiative to resolve the conflict. It should not be this way between us. But then what is amazing is that he, though the elder, though the superior in that society, in every way defers to his nephew and says, I'm not going to let us pump this down the road that we're just going to ignore it and not deal with it. We're going to deal with it. But you tell me how you'd like to deal with it. You tell me where you want to go and how you would like to resolve this. And so he puts it to him in the form of the question, is not the whole land before you? He's giving him complete freedom to pick and not say, will you pick after I pick? But... You've got the whole land before you. What an amazing humility on someone who is older, wealthier, more successful, more status to say to someone who is younger, you make the choice. I'm going to defer to you. But I don't want to just let the conflict continue. I do want to bring this to a resolution so that it's not, it doesn't blow up into something more. And this is something that most of us don't like to do. We don't like to take the initiative with conflict. But if you're in any long-term relationship with anybody, whether it's your neighbor, your spouse, a friend, you could pretty easily just say to them, hey, I bet there's probably like a bunch of things I do that like really annoy you and frustrate you. What are they, and how can I improve on them? Almost anyone could answer that question for you. Well, you know, sometimes I think you do this, and sometimes you do this, and sometimes... But you have to be fairly comfortable with the relationship to be able to bring that up. But it's so much easier to deal with the issue if you're the one that brings it up. If you invite someone else to say to you, what are are ways I could grow, or or, what are things that I'm doing that I could stop doing to maybe, but surely I'm not doing everything the way I should. Surely we're not firing on all cylinders. I want that over time, hopefully our relationship gets better, it gets stronger, it's never going to be perfect, but I'm I'm just curious, what what would you say? You have to swallow your pride. (laughs) You'll you'll hear a lot of things about you um, that are hard to hear, and in reality, not all of them are necessarily true. And perception is not always reality, but it is the reality we have to deal with. That if someone perceives you to be unkind, if someone perceives you to be distant, that's how they relate to you. And you might say, no, I, I, didn't. I wasn't trying to be distant, I wasn't trying to be difficult with you. And so what you might just learn is how other people interpret some of your actions and some of your attitudes. But it is the only helpful way for conflict to be resolved when those involved in it take the initiative to bring it to resolution. Next week is going to be the total opposite of this. The only way to resolve next week's conflict is force. It's totally different. Someone comes in and is just bringing the house down on people and is violent against them. And Abram has to step up and say, who's ready to come fight with me? But in this situation, it's a conflict between them as family. No one's trying to hurt anyone. And yet someone has to take the initiative and the lead to say, how could this be better? How can we put an end to this conflict? And that's the difference. When, like chapter 13, conflict happens internally in a marriage or in a family, it often pushes people apart. When conflict in chapter 14 comes from the outside, it has this amazing way of unifying people inside. Well, now we have a common enemy, and so we somehow get closer together as we're fighting something else. But when the conflict is internal, it's, it's much more subtle, And so we have to be proactive if we're going to deal with it and to address it. And for them, it does mean separation. There's not a way that they're going to resolve this and stay together, and they know that. But that doesn't mean they've done something wrong. They can peacefully resolve to live in two different areas. We see this in the beginning of the New Testament when the disciples are obeying the command of God to go into the world and make disciples that they can't always agree on who should be involved how they should be selected and what their role should be in the church and it actually leads to division at times between Paul and some of his followers and that's okay they go their separate way but both of them separate in such a way that they remain committed to the cause of Christ and the work that he's called them to The separation is not that one wins and the other one loses, and so one is engaged and the other one's on the sideline. That would not be a healthy resolution to the conflict. A healthy resolution is where both parties are enabled to continue to do what God has called them to do and to grow and flourish in the ways that God has called them to do. And so to encourage them that, and sometimes that means physically separation. And this is one of the challenges for many, many people called into any Christian work, be that global missions or any other kind of work, is when they get disoriented by the reality that Christians don't often agree on what they're supposed to do. And that there's conflict. And wait a minute, I I took this step in faith and I went to this place and I was willing to do this and put it all on the line, and now I find that more often than not, the people I'm disagreeing with and the issues I'm having are internal. They're with my brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's sad when that happens, but it shouldn't surprise us when it happens. Because even though you're a Christian, you're a human being. And you go with you wherever you go. All of your opinions. I mean, how often do you disagree with yourself on any given day? Let alone, therefore, how much you would disagree with another person. And when we can't handle and resolve those issues charitably, then it will cause us to desire to quit or to give up or to no longer move forward in the cause of Christ. But if we're prepared beforehand, before we go out to recognize that even the people that we're doing ministry with are just like us, sinners, and will struggle along the way and will see things differently than us, then those conflicts can be opportunities to sharpen us and to make us better. That that's actually the whole point. The church is supposed to be messy. The church is supposed to be difficult at times so that in the difficulty and in the work to resolve those difficulties and to forgive one another when there's been hurt or misunderstanding, we find a deeper level of relationship than would have existed before. There's kind of that superficial relationship you can have when you don't know each other that well and you only see each other in certain settings and so you can never, com- you know, you never just get on each other's nerves. And then there's like when you take a road trip with someone and you're like, okay, how many hours into this before we get through all the superficial subjects we can and therefore we're going to reveal something about ourselves and we're going to know very clearly that we're not perfect that we struggle and then yet if we can push past the pain and come to a relationship that is deeper we can respect each other for our differences we can congratulate each other along the way we try to instill this all the time in our new members class we say we're non-denominational but we're not anti-denominational we're not in competition with any other church or any other christian organization trying to do the work of god for us to succeed and to do what God has called us to do, no other Christian has to fail. None. And so we have no interest in saying anything negative about any other Christian organization or church sincerely doing the work of God. Why would we? If you catch us doing it, call us on it. Because there are differences that lead to different congregations, that lead to different approaches of ministry, that lead to physical separation, but if we do it in a mature way and affirm each other along the way, then we should be able to celebrate in the success of others and weep with them in times of struggle or pain, just like we would hope that they could do with us. That if we're really doing this because God has called us to do it, and it's ultimately his mission that he is seeking to accomplish something in the world, it's not our agenda, well, then we can set ourselves aside. I mean, How else does Abram get to the point of letting Lot choose first? Except that he's embraced that this whole journey is about him making everything he has available to God to do what he would desire to do with it. And because he's willing to do that, sure, he's willing to let Lot choose. But if the posture of his whole life is how do I hold on to everything I have? Then everyone around you is an enemy, everyone around you is a competitor. And you can't celebrate in their success. And you can't celebrate in their joy. But Abram lets Lot make the choice. And Lot chooses the fertile land. It it, it describes it, it says, well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord. I mean, it's beautiful. And he says, I want that piece of real estate. Which almost any one of us, therefore, looking at it, would have probably made a similar choice. Here's what we haven't quite talked about yet, though, that now, with Lot leaving, that creates a problem for Abram. Because the promise to Abram was that it would be through his offspring that all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And Abram and Sarah, well into their 70s now, do not have children. There's no one to give and leave an inheritance to there's no offspring. We don't know why for sure Lot went with Abram when Abram was told to leave everyone, except that it does make sense that for Abram as a reasonable thinker to say, well, I'm already 75 years old. I have to make contingency plans. I have to think about who's going to do the work after me. And he doesn't have any children. And in that society, everything is passed down In that way, he can't set up a trust fund to donate to local causes after he's gone. If he doesn't have offspring, where is all of his resources gonna go? And here, a conflict arises where the one person that he brought with him that could represent his offspring leaves. God, what are you doing? (laughs) You promised me something and I cannot see how this is going to happen. You have to believe that there's almost an insensitivity, (laughs) at least the risk of it, to say to him, no, 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 this is going to happen through your offspring. But I don't have any. And so it's in this very moment in verse 14, that it says then that the Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated him, lift up your eyes and look from the place and I'm going to give this to you and your offspring forever. What? After the the one person that would seem to represent that has left, Abram needs some encouragement. He needs to lift his eyes up. He needs to believe that God is not just messing with him or toying with his emotions, but that God knows exactly what he is doing and what he promised he can keep. And then what's fascinating is that he tells him to look at the dust of the earth. And when I read that, I couldn't help but think of, if you're just going through the flow of Genesis, the main way in which dust has been referred to at this point is that we are of dust, and from dust to dust we shall return. That's the curse on Adam. Adam when they're kicked out of the garden, he's told, you are from dust and from dust you shall return. And now God is saying to Abram, look at the dust. What do you see? I'm telling you that just as innumerable as it is, so will your offspring be. And so just like earlier, blessings can be curses. Part of this promise is God saying to him, that he can reverse curses into blessings. That he can switch curses into blessings. That when he's walking around the land northward and westward and southward and he's kicking up dust on his feet and they're dirty and he's reminded of his own mortality, that he will become dust one day. That God is saying to him, what you see is not all that's there. I can make from the dust of the earth, just like I made you into a living being. I can remake you. I can remake your family. Such that there would be so much offspring that you could not count it. And that then is a major theme throughout the rest of covenant history of how God deals with his people. He turns curses into blessings. He takes what looks like darkness and he shines light through it. He takes what looks like a dead end street and he brings about resurrection. He makes something completely new, something that no one could have seen before. So that if we were standing with Abram and Lot Lot is looking at fertile ground that looks like the Garden of Eden. It has all of the promise and potential of fertility and growth and food. And God tells Abram to look at the dust. Not a lot is going to grow there. If I've got something to plant, I'm not going to plant it there. That's where things go to die. And yet that's precisely what God is telling him. That he can take what looks like death what looks like it has no hope and has no future, and he can make a future from it. And so do we want to choose what looks like a blessing, what looks like fertile ground and eventually becomes a curse? Or do we trust God enough that we would follow him in such a way that when things look dark, look down and out, look dead, that we would say, but you see, God's the one that makes all the difference. (laughs) Without God, all that fertile ground becomes dust again. With God, all of the dust that you see becomes life-giving again. So yeah, what I want is God. I don't want what I can see. I don't want what just makes sense to me in my own observation or even in a council of many. What I want is God. And I want whatever he can do with the world that he made. To conclude, we'll go to Hebrews chapter 12 to see how Jesus himself was willing to go into darkness, into pain, because he believed something that was not to anyone's eye visible at the time. Hebrews chapter 12. This is page 1008. We'll read the first two verses. Actually, we'll continue to verse three. The writer says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, So here the author is summarizing the willingness of our Savior to come and to die on the cross for us. Not because he saw in us the fertile ground like the Garden of Eden and said, Oh my goodness, I just have to, I have to go after these amazing people. But that he believed that by dying, by laying his life down, he could make us beautiful. He could Redeem us from the situation that we were in so that we whose future was only dust could now actually be an eternal relationship with him forever. And for the future which no one could see, the joy set before him, he went through the cross. He went through the pain. He allowed his body to be broken for you and for me And so then he says to you and me as Christians, if that's what you believe is most central to your faith and that's how you got saved, well then as you're going around and telling other people the good news about salvation, whether it's to your neighbor, your coworker, your family member, whether you do go to global missions or support people in global missions, realize it's gonna be like this. You're going to invest and give and participate in a lot of situations that look hopeless, but that's what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to trust me in what I can do with this situation rather than to trust yourself with your best intentions. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you that you can turn curses into blessings. That you can raise up new life from ground and situations that do not have the conditions to produce new life. Father, we pray that as we look back on your servant Abram and all that he dealt with, that you would help us to think through specifically what it needs to be applied to in our own lives whether in taking initiative to resolve strife or conflict in our own situations, to be peacemakers wherever we can, or whether it is just to sit in wonder afresh that you would love us so much, that you looked upon us, and even though you saw brokenness and decay and death, that you were willing to give yourself for us. We pray that through your spirit you would Multiply your truth in our hearts. In whatever ways you see fit, But we do pray that you would help us not to trust ourselves and not to trust what our eyes can see, but to trust you completely. In your son's name we pray, amen.